Let's just get right down to business. The Joe Roberts Show. This, this is The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. On today's show, we have Douglas Borthwick, Chief Business Officer of INX Limited. We're going to discuss details about the project, team and token, along with any plans on the roadmap. INX Limited wants to bring cryptocurrency and security token opportunities to institutional and retail investors. Douglas, let's start by giving us a bit of background by yourself, please. Sure. I'm uh, Douglas Borthwick, as you said, the Chief Business Officer for INX Limited. My background was I uh, grew up in Scotland, did a couple of years at Germantown Academy outside of Philly, Carnegie Mellon undergrad, business school at Yale. Then did 10 years at Morgan Stanley, running foreign exchange derivative trading desks. I ran proprietary trading desk at Merrill Lynch, at Standard Chartered, another bank, and ran the Latin America business. Then went to a company called TPI Cap, where I built a company called Chapdelaine FX, which is a very large foreign exchange ECN. I left there and heard about a guy in Israel that was working with the SEC to create the first ever registered security. So just like, you know, Amazon, Nike. But this one would trade 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and would IPO in the blockchain. And I thought that that absolutely is something that I wanted to be involved in. I got into crypto initially on the crypto side because I spent my career really going around and looking around the world and devaluing currencies. It happened in Asia, happened in Latin America, and Iceland, I think, was the last one. But really, it came to a point where I realized that the U.S. was depreciating and devaluing, and the only way that you could actually devalue the dollar was sort of jump onto something that would give you some sort of safety. And I saw Bitcoin as being that safety valve or that, that life vest. I think that when we all grow up, we're always shown pictures of the dollar and it goes from the bottom left to the top right. And we're told things about compounding interest. Another thing we're always taught when we're kids from our grandparents is you've got to buy real estate. It's the best investment world. <laughs> now, the truth is, it's not real estate that's a great investment. And it's actually the fact that the dollar continues to go down in price, but real estate's a hard asset. And so it retains its value. And I think that's important. And I'll give an example. When I first got a job on Wall Street as an analyst, I think it was $30,000 was my compensation. Nowadays, you want to hire an analyst on at a top Wall Street firm, it's going to be $150,000. It's not that kids are smarter, five times smarter than I was. It's just that the value of the dollar has gone down by five times. And I think that most people don't understand that because we're sort of like frogs slowly being boiled in water and we never jump out because we don't really realize what's happening. Now, if you're wealthy, you don't notice it as much because you own real estate, you own hard assets, you own art, you own different things. But if you're on that sort of borderline and you're making minimum wage, you do notice it because that minimum wage goes fewer and fewer miles in terms of how it feeds and clothes your family. Now, then Bitcoin came around. And here was something you could buy fractional ownership in. You didn't have to buy a Picasso anymore to save your $30 million. Now you could save $5 buying something like Bitcoin. And I think that people don't understand really what Bitcoin is or what it can be. But you never notice by looking at the value of the dollar against the yen or the dollar against the euro, how much the dollar is going down because the euro is going down too. And so is the yen. Every country in the world is printing currency. But if you look at the dollar in terms of how is it compared to, let's say, Bitcoin or real estate or fine art, you'll find that the dollar is absolutely collapsing. And so I got into that space. I met with this chap that was uh, in Israel, and I said, I have to be involved with this project. I flew out to Tel Aviv for the first time ever, met with him, and got involved with the project. And 
INEX is very different in that we wanted to do a IPO in the blockchain. And that means that it was a digital security issued on the Ethereum blockchain, ERC-1404 token. We spent 950 days working with the SEC to do this because it had never been done before. So sure, crypto was around, securities were around, but there was nothing that was actually a security on a blockchain. So 950 days coming up with the definitions in our prospectus that we uh, had for investors. But we wanted to do this specific type of issuance because we saw ICOs in 2017 and 2018. And we thought that these are great ways to raise money from the general public, but they're completely illegal. And that when you raise money from the general public, you have to involve the SEC. It has to be a registered security. And so, you know, we had to build that from scratch. We did it. We got approval from the SEC. It's called uh, Going Effective. We opened up a website and on that website, there was an invest now button. We told people about our project, what we were going to do, what the token was. And what the token was offering was 40% of our profits, if we ever have any, going forward. But this is our vision. And our vision was to create a platform where you could trade cryptocurrencies, where you could trade security tokens, where you could trade digital assets of all, all nature for retail and institutions. So something that had existed in that you've got cryptocurrency trading companies, existed in that there are security token trading companies, but it wasn't something that sort of encompassed all of it. In the end, we raised $84 million or $85 million from 7,250 investors in 74 countries. And we sold the IPO at 90 cents. Today, the token's trading at $2.60. If our IPO was put up against all other IPOs in the United States for 2021, we would be the second best performing IPO of the year. But of course, we're not because we're on the blockchain and we're digital as opposed to in paper format sitting on the NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. Now, once we'd done our IPO, we said we went to the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. We said, we'd like to list with you. They said, listen, we can't list digital assets. We said, well, that's an opportunity. We used some of the capital that we had to do a number of things to start up a cryptocurrency trading business that actually is open in Pennsylvania. It opened in 23 states, I believe, in Washington, D.C. so far, but we're adding new states every single uh, month. And we also bought a broker-dealer and ATS that specialized in digital assets called Open Finance. And we decided to list our token on that ATS. Today, the INX token is the most traded security token in the United States, with the most number of holders of it. There's 8,040, I believe, as of right now. And the volumes done and the market cap on our exchange, I believe, are the largest of all of the folks that are our competition. And we're only about three months old. We also bought an interdealer broker. That's the kind of guy that deals with 40 plus US banks and, and international banks and trades with them currencies and commodities. And we did that because we want to start offering derivative products that are called non-deliverable forwards in Bitcoin and Ethereum because banks around the world want to trade Bitcoin and they're being told to by their high net worth clients and institutions. And they want to create different types of financial instruments like commercial paper so they can make money on Bitcoin. But the way they need to do that is they need to build a yield curve. Right now, their only uh, ways to do that were to go into the IMM or the CME and use the futures contracts, but that only gives you three to six months. With an NDF, you can go out to one year. And it doesn't actually require settlement of Bitcoin. Instead, what it requires is just the price movement of Bitcoin that has followed. And it's something we used to do in uh, currencies like in Argentina, Chile, Colombia, China. Currencies that were very enclosed, but you wanted to have some sort of exposure to them for hedging reasons. So that's kind of what we're doing in a nutshell. Now what we're doing is we've announced a whole number of partnerships. 
One is security tokens existed before we came along, but mostly they were for accredited investors, you know, wealthy people. And what we wanted to do was have security tokens, I think, that everyone's interested in, that everyone can trade. There's obviously the INEX token on our platform today. We've signed an agreement with a company called IPEX. And what IPEX is doing is taking intellectual property and monetizing that by doing a security token on the back of that, offering a yield on that security token. And then we're going to be offering those to investors on our platform. Now, if you think of the S&P 500, they say they're around 80% of the value of the S&P 500 is in intellectual property. So if you're Microsoft, you're sitting on all this intellectual property, but you know you can't actually put that intellectual property up to the bank as collateral for a loan. But what we can do is we can tokenize that intellectual property, put a yield on it, and then sell it to folks. And so then companies like Microsoft or Boeing or Xerox or whomever can tokenize, can raise capital, pay a yield on it without actually you know, having that debt on their balance sheet necessarily. Instead, what they have is they're using the IP that sits in their balance sheet. So we think that that's very exciting. Uh, this morning, we just announced that we're going to start listing NFTs, non-fungible tokens, as securities on our platform. And this is sort of a new thing in that NFTs are trading everywhere. You can go to OpenSea right now. You can buy a Pengu. Maybe you could buy an egg, a penguin egg as well. All of this is on the Ethereum blockchain. There's a couple of things about NFTs that make it interesting, we think, to the SEC. One is the fact that every time a NFT is sold, there's a certain percentage that's then sent back to the originator of that NFT. Now that bears a lot of resemblance to us to securities in that there's a commission being paid every single time there's a transaction. And the reason that someone's creating it is so that they can create money in the future. Well, that sounds like a security to me. So we think that NFTs at some point could move into the securities umbrella. We also believe from our discussions with the SEC over 950 days, that soon all assets will move on to the blockchain. And this is something that was said by SEC Chairman Clayton, the former chairman, back in November, I believe it was of last year, a speech in Philadelphia. And he said that he can see all assets moving onto the blockchain in the next three to five years. What does that mean? Well, right now, the market cap for all blockchain-based products is just over $2 trillion. There's $105 trillion sitting there right now in equities and another $100-plus trillion sitting in fixed income. If and when all of that moves onto the blockchain, there's going to be tremendous opportunities for companies like mine. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to take all of these companies, or as many as I can attract, and I'm going to tell them to retire their shares and instead issue security tokens to their shareholders. And then we will list them on our ATS. Now, what's an ATS? Well, it's sort of a step down from an exchange like NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. In fact, there's one that's called the OTC. And the OTC has a lot of different stocks. I don't, I'm sure you know, all of your listeners probably have stocks that trade on the OTC, and it's an ATS, an alternative trading system. But theirs is for legacy assets. Ours is for digital assets. And what's the difference between legacy and digital? Well, digital means that with my platform, it trades 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. That's 5.6 times more than a traditional exchange that's is open from 9.30 until 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So that's one exciting thing. The other thing is security tokens can't be shorted. Now, if you look at the OTC today, you'll find that there's so many issues that have over a 50% short against them. That's because it's very, very cheap for a hedge fund to go out, put on a short on an OTC stock and walk away. That's a lot of weight on OTC stocks. As soon as they can get rid of that weight, 
And there might be an expectation if you take the short side of something that maybe it would rise in price. And so that's something that's very exciting that we're, that we're working on right now. There's also other companies that want to do what we did. They want to raise money from the general public. Now, when you're an early stage company, you've got a number of choices. Now, I have to just add in here. What I'm saying here is not financial advice and should not be thought of that in any way whatsoever. It's just a casual conversation. But there's a lot of folks that when you have an early stage company, you want to raise money. And you've got a number of choices. You can raise debt, go around your friends and family, ask them to lend you money. You could max out your credit cards. You could go to VCs, venture capital firms or private equity firms, and you could raise money from them. Or you could do a security token. Now, when you raise money from VCs and private equity, you start giving up equity, giving up equity, giving up equity, giving up board seats. And maybe by the time you, end, you sort of enter into the public markets, maybe you're a minority owner of the company that you actually founded. And maybe your view isn't listened to quite as much as it was when you founded the company. Now, a security token doesn't have to be linked to the equity of the company. Ours isn't. Ours is linked to 40% of our profits, if we have any. And it's not debt on your balance sheet. So for a lot of companies, that sounds pretty exciting because you can get money. You're giving up something in the future that today doesn't exist, but you can get money today that can invest in your ideas, invest in your project, so you can then push it forward to the next level. And it's not just about raising a million dollars or $2 million like you'd find with the crowdfunding on Facebook. This is, you know, we raised $85 million. So you can raise considerable amounts of money from lots of different people. And this is something that came actually from the Jobs Act. Now, the Jobs Act was uh, something that actually was pushed out by a chap called David Weald, who's our chairman of our board and was the vice chairman of NASDAQ. He's joined on my board by Nick Thedaney, who's the CEO of the Toronto Stock Exchange, and Tom Lewis, who's the CEO of Ameritrade. So you know, we wanted to go out there. If you want to raise money, really what we can do is we can put an invest now button on your website and you, you can use the community that you already know to come in and invest. You've got a podcast. You know, I don't know how many subscribers you have, man. Let's say you've got 100,000 subscribers. And your subscribers listen to your podcast every week and they love it. But you want to raise money today because you want to up your game from just podcasts to doing video grams, all kinds, you know, whatever you want to do in your space. Mm. And so you say, you know what? I'm going to do a regulated offering. Now you can either do a full prospectus, that's very expensive, or you could do a private offering like a Regulation D, which is for accredited investors, a Regulation S for folks outside the United States, or a Reg A for retail inside the United States. You file this, and then you put in an Invest Now button on your website. You tell all of your followers, the folks that, that love what you're doing, this is what we're doing, we're raising money for this. They go into the website, they press the button. On the other side, we do a KYC and an AML to make sure that you know, these folks are who they say they are. Take the money, give them to security tokens that represent whatever it is that you're selling. And then we list it on our exchange and they'll trade up and down based upon the perceptions of whether you're actually following the goals that you said you would. You get the cash in hand. They get to be able to trade essentially your future. And that's very, very exciting for a lot of people, especially if you've got millions of followers. If you're a celebrity, and you want to do something, let's say you're a celebrity chef and you want to open up a new restaurant. Well, you can find all the backers a traditional way and give up equity in the restaurant, this, that, and the next thing. Or you can go out to your followers and say, look, I need to raise $20 million to fit out this restaurant and do all these different things. 
you can actually go to the community that already follows you and allow them to participate in your future. And that's a very exciting thing for a security token. But there's other uses for security tokens too. Not everyone is allowed to invest in Bitcoin around the world. You know, China's a country that lately turned around and said, you know what, you can't invest in crypto. Okay, but you can still invest in securities. And security tokens are securities. And so if I can do a security token that's actually backed by, let's say, a Bitcoin miner, yeah, pretty good. That's like owning Bitcoin on steroids, but you can own it now, whereas you couldn't own Bitcoin before. Or maybe there's different tax consequences on Bitcoin or in crypto versus on securities. And so maybe folks in Japan pay a lesser tax rate on securities, but a higher tax rate on crypto. So they might be interested in buying something like that. So, you know, we're really sort of weaving the needle in terms of what this can be used for. And I'm talking to sports teams with millions of followers, millions of supporters that are interested in tokenizing. And I'm talking to individuals that have millions of followers also interested in tokenizing. And I'm talking to small companies that are going to tokenize through me. And I'm talking to companies that are already listed on other exchanges that are going to go onto the security token uh, way as well. But security tokens also have amazing qualities for regulators. One of those qualities is, especially with the ERC-1404 standard, it can't be stolen. You can't lose it. And I think one of the biggest fears that people have with crypto is, well, if I put it on my drive and my, and my wallet, what if I lose my wallet? We've all read about these guys that go to the, they say, oh, it was lost in a boating accident or in a landfill. And they'll spend months looking for their millions of dollars and never find it. Well, the SEC knows very well that you can't allow someone to lose their 401k in a boating accident. And so with this ERC-1404 token, if you were to lose your wallet, that's fine. We can revoke the token from that wallet and reissue it to a new wallet. You can't do that with Bitcoin. You can't do that with Ethereum. You can't do that with an ERC-20 token. You can only do it with an ERC-1404. And that's a standard that we came up with with a company called TokenSoft and the SEC to sort of allay people's concerns. But there's another problem that regulators see right now with current equities. You can have Nike stock, you could give it to me. I could sell the Nike stock. I now have cash. Nike doesn't know, the government doesn't know. That's called money laundering. And that happens in securities, but with digital securities, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen because everybody knows who's moving what, when, how, where, and you can go to something called Etherscan to see every transaction. And the only way that you could own an INX token, if I was to send it to you, right now, let's say I have it in my my treasure wallet, my trust wallet, and I want to send them to you, it looks onto the blockchain, checks if your wallet address is whitelisted as well. And if it's not, it refuses to move. It'll only move to your wallet address if you whitelist your wallet. Now, what does that mean? That means you've actually got to go to a website, say, here's my name, here's my photograph, here's my utility bill. This is me. Please register my wallet. That's also new. It means that I, as the issuer, know at all times who my cap table is in lifetime. Gone are the days when a hedge fund could sort of sneak up and slowly get 5% of your stock. Now with security tokens, you can see in lifetime whether someone's portfolio is buying or selling your token. That's pretty exciting to a lot of issuers, less exciting to hedge funds. Another, you know, I think, uh, thing that, that, that's spectacular about the ERC-1404 is the fact that it can't be stolen. I think you've always read about folks that say, oh, you know, I had it in my wallet, but then some scammer came and he took it from me. He scammed my seed phrase from me, or I was on a Telegram chat and someone told me to go to this website. Well, 
the DRC-1404, like I just said, it'll only move from one wallet to another if the other one is also whitelisted. Why would someone with a whitelisted wallet steal a token from someone else? Because I know who that person is. You could go on Etherscan in Lifetime, get that wallet address. You could come to the issuer and say, listen, I've just been scammed out of this. Who's his name? And I'd say, okay, bring law enforcement in. And then I could show them the name and address, phone number of the person that just stole it. So no one's ever going to steal your tokens. But if someone did this again, and the cops couldn't get in touch with them, I could also revoke the tokens from their wallet and reissue them back to a new wallet that you have. So there are so many levels of security here. You know, folks talk about cybersecurity all the time. They talk about how, you know, I had my Bitcoin stolen, I had my Ethereum stolen, I had this, that, and the next thing. And they worry about this, they fret about it. And so they think about custody solutions. You know, people say, I can't wait till Fidelity offers custody or Morgan Stanley offers custody. But with ERC-1404, I don't think it really matters where you're custodying it. You can hold it in your MetaMask wallet because the odds of someone being able to steal it are pretty much nothing. The only guy that could steal it or take it is someone that I already know the name and address for. So you'd have to be kind of a chump to do something like that. And that's really exciting because I think a lot of the population is afraid of the downsides of crypto. You know that there's lots of horror stories of people that have lost crypto here, lost crypto there, and that that's not really an option now. And, and it's not something that happens when you use this ERC-1404 token. So, you know, INEX, I think we had a vision, we've executed on it. We're doing the things that we said that we would do. We've got a great team of, of folks. You know, there's myself in New York, a guy called Alan Silbert, who's the CEO in the Americas. Over there in Israel, we've got our CTO, Paz Diamant. He was the CTO of eToro X, which you probably heard of. Itai Abneri, who's the CEO of Playtech, which is a big gaming company. And my CEO is Shai Datika, and Shai is a serial entrepreneur with a big background in the financial market space. And I've talked about my board, and then the earliest investors in our company were Charlie Lee, who's obviously the inventor of Litecoin, and Ricardo Spagni, who's behind Monero. So what Shai Datika, this chap in Israel, managed to do was, was gather around him experts from the blockchain space, but also experts in the legacy space, stick us all in a room together, and then come out with solutions. And I think a lot of the time folks say that blockchain is walking around and looking for a solution. And I think that what we did is we found the issues and we've created something that actually solves them. Now, I've said a lot of things here. You've got to ask questions got some things to unpack, right? Let's hit on the NFTs because definitely they've been obviously popping in the news lately. And we're starting to see all different types where, you know, whether it's just a JPEG or like you said, there could be some type of royalties or airdrops in the future. How does an investor look at what may be deemed a security and kind of make a better decision in what they're choosing to invest in? One of the issues I think with NFTs today is the question of ownership, legal ownership. Let's say I have a video. That video is of an NBA player playing a game. Who owns that? Me, the person that took the video. Maybe I recorded it from my television set. Does the NBA own it? Does the player own it? Now, that's a good question. So the question of ownership always becomes important when you're buying something from someone. And if you're buying something, but actually the question of ownership's sitting there sort of in the ether, literally, well, that could be a problem. And I think that when you, when you have it as a security, it's quite a different story. Now, NFTs today that you see today aren't going to be the NFTs of tomorrow. You carry NFTs in your wallet right now, just not in digital format. 
You've got a driver's license that's unique to you. You've got a social security number that's unique to you. You have a passport unique to you. You have a COVID vaccination card that's unique to you. You've got a license plate on your car. It's unique to you. You've got a college diploma unique to you. All of these things are NFTs. And in the future, will be issued as NFTs, and you'll store them in your MetaMask wallet on your phone. So you won't be carrying that wallet that you carry today. Instead, when you're pulled over for speeding, you'll bring up the NFT of your driver's license and you show it to the officer and he'll scan it. Say, okay, great. I know exactly that is you. Yes, thank you very much. When you're asked for a social security number, when you get a new job, you'll bring it up in your phone. You'll show that NFT. Yep. Okay. Thank you very much. When you want to spend money, you'll use digital currency like a USDC or a GN or a Z dollar. And you use that to then pay for your goods and services. When you want to check your portfolio, you go into your MetaMask wallet or something similar on your phone and you look at all your securities. Everything is moving in that direction. And it's moving in that direction because it's just more efficient. How, how did you get your driver's license? You either went to the DMV or it was sent to you in the mail. How did you get your social number sent to you in the mail? Isn't it easier these days just to send something over email? You know, how about a passport sent to you in the mail? Why? Why not just send me an NFT from the passport office that I'll then store in my phone? And that is the future. That's where things are moving. That's specifically for issues, for things that you use every single day. Now, for artwork, things of a greater monetary value, some people are saying, well, you know, I've got a $10 million painting and I'm going to do 10 million NFTs and sell them for a dollar. Well, fractionalized ownership generally comes under the purview of the SEC. And so as an NFT goes up in value and people then think about fractionalizing them, well, that's kind of coming into my purview now and that's coming to my broker dealer. But there's certainly going to be NFTs out there that are seen as being non-securities. But I think there's a lot of, of NFTs out there right now that will be seen as securities. And this is very similar to the same way that we looked at utility tokens. Think of utility tokens. They trade on exchanges like Coinbase, or Binance, whatever. These guys raised money. XRP, let's say, is a good example. They printed the tokens. They sold them to the general public, used that money to then get their company up and running, compensated people in their company with it. Is that a security or is that a utility token? No. The SEC would argue it's a security. I'd probably be in that camp as well. And I think it was Gensler at the SEC that said the other day that he sees hundreds of utility tokens trading on regular cryptocurrency exchanges that actually he sees are securities. And they're going to be kicked off of these cryptocurrency exchanges, and they're going to have to re-register securities and then be listed on a platform like mine. And there aren't that many platforms like mine in the US, there's maybe four, four or five, but I'm the only one that's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I'm the only one that lets you custody in a MetaMask wallet. Now, MetaMask wallets, what are they? Well, if you know own an NFT, you know exactly what they are. But there are wallets that, you know, there's an internet browser. You can go onto a website. It syncs in with the website and allows you to trade. That's pretty exciting. Whether you're on OpenSea, you can do that. Whether you're on my trading platform, you can do that as well. And that's very exciting because you can move it around with you wherever you are. You don't actually have something physical. It just sits in your, in your browser. Now, MetaMask wallets, there's only 5 million of them, I believe, back in May of this year. Today, I think there's around 13 million. So it's a very, very fast growing business is the MetaMask wallet. And the popularity of this is showing in the price of gas fees these days with Ethereum. When the penguins had their eggs the other day, the pengus, this is an NFT, 
the price of gas absolutely went through the roof because everyone was buying them and trying to put them onto their wallets. Now, Ethereum 2.0 is about to be released. And once that's online, we believe that the price of doing these transactions on the Ethereum blockchain are going to collapse much more in line with side chains like an Avalanche or Liquid or Cardano or any of the other blockchains that are out there. So a lot of exciting things in the space, but I think hopefully now you understand why we can see an NFT as a security. No, I agree. I mean, obviously everybody is looking for an answer and the few things that come to my mind is right now for somebody to fractionalize an NFT or go about how they're currently doing business, it typically, like you said, it may only cost minimal amount, whether it's some gas fees, 50, 100 bucks, 200 bucks. The typical process of going down the path as a security and doing the proper re registrations typically costs a lot more, which could be cost. No. No? It depends. If you were doing a full prospectus, and that's what we did, maybe that's going to cost $700,000 and take nine months. But we're not talking about that. You could do a reg D, reg S. It's a very simple procedure maybe in the cost of $20,000. <laughs> now, again, but the little things that's irrelevant, but you don't fractionalize something that's worth $20. You're fractionalizing something that's in the millions of dollars. So the small stuff that's trading around today, yeah, that, that's fine. That's never going to be registered as a, as a security individually. And neither is your driver's license, neither is your passport. But what would be, would be if you've got a painting that's a $10 million painting, that $10 million painting, every time it's sold, a percentage is going back to the artist. And then it's also available in fractionalized format. So you could buy one one hundredth of it or one two hundredth of it. That's the kind of thing that needs to be registered as a security in some way. Or not registered, but it needs to be listed as a security. Now, do you find it more effective for people, at least in the U.S., to do a Reg S offering where they're offering it overseas and then have the ability for those people to retrade it later? Very good pickup. So yeah, Reg D is for US accredited investors. The Reg S is for any retail investor outside the United States in non-bad country jurisdictions. It's certainly a much more simple task, but you also then cut out the American investor that's retail. And we looked at all of these different things. And also it's a private offering rather than a public offering, which means that you don't have to do as many filings and follow the Edgar database stuff quite as much as you do in your public company as we are. I think that doing a reg D reg S is one of the simplest. Um, and so it's probably how most of these issues will be processed going forward. But I think that, you know, when you have something that's very big, let's say if I was to have a Picasso, then I'd probably do a full prospectus offering. And in that nine months, I'd be marketing that Picasso all around the world with a QR code that someone could take a photograph of that says invest now. And I'd be collecting names, numbers, phone numbers, so that when we actually had the listing ready, then we'd be able to go into all these people that had expressed an interest and that say, yes, I'd like to buy right now. From a, a reg D offering where you can offer it and advertise it publicly, and the need to have to verify accreditation to those in the U.S. Maybe you can kind of explain how this process may be streamlined through a platform like yourself. Well, you know, we're a registered broker-dealer and ATS, so we have the folks that are necessary to screen investors to make sure that they are accredited investors or to make sure that they do reside outside the United States or they do reside in the U.S. to make sure that they, and we also, there's AML, to make sure we know uh, 
who they are, where their money comes from, if you need to know that, what their source of assets are, what their addresses are, to match all of this up and to do checks. So that's necessary. Now, a lot of utility tokens that are sold to the general public, you, know, you don't even know who they are. It's a fake name buying something and taking it onto a wallet somewhere else. It's an absolute invitation for money laundering. But when you go through the process of KYC AML, we snip that in the bud. And so how far or how efficient can this whole process get over the next few years of, you know, in doing these type of security offerings to make it somewhat closer to what you could do with the NFT today, but more on the security side? Well, an NFT today, it's like going on eBay, right? <laughs> you list it, someone buys it. Now, the U.S. government, I think, and I'm just talking out, you know, out of my own head here, the U.S. government is less caring about whether something is fluid and lacks in friction. They're more caring about making sure that there's no money laundering and that the people that are buying it are the people that they say they are. So I don't think that the government gives much of a thought towards whether or not it's seamless, but what they do want to know is that it's thorough. Yeah. Which... <laughs> now, and that's different from the consumer. The consumer wants seamless. But you know what? You can't go and buy Nike stock from your buddy on the corner or through his website. You've got to go through a regulated entity to be able to do that. And when you do that, though, you feel a little bit safer. You feel like what you're buying is what you're actually buying. When I go to a site right now and I buy an NFT, how do I know that there's not a thousand of these? The only verification is through certain contracts. You're right, right. But if there is a thousand, again, how do I go back and, and get my recompense? But you can't. You can't get it. I mean, good luck finding the guy. You know, a lot of NFTs these days are created by a computer that does a series, all very, you know, slight differentiations. And there's a series number one, two, three, four, all the way up to a thousand. But it's not like you can go and sue the computer because he actually printed two or three or four or five. You've got no idea if they're selling the same amount of NFTs over in a different country. You got no clue. Now, you can find out over time and you can look on the blockchain, you can kind of see how it's moving back and forth. But when you do an offering that goes through the SEC, if you're not truthful, there's consequences, right? I mean, I'll be in handcuffs and I'll be gone off to San Quentin or wherever folks go if they, if they do something that they say they're not going to do. And I think that that's the big difference. Like look at the ICO craze, 2017, 2018. Again, this is a simple way of raising money. I put out a white paper. I open up a website. Anyone and their mother comes in, sends me Bitcoin or Ethereum, and I give them tokens. That sounds great, except for the fact that, let us go back. Anyone and their mother could come on this website, send me Bitcoin and Ethereum, and I give them tokens. You've got no idea who these people were that gave you the money. There's no way to trace the Bitcoin or the Ethereum at that time. And then the founders got all the money, and then they disappear. They go off to some island somewhere. And who are you running after if you invested in this project? Who, who exactly are you going after? I don't know. Nobody. Right. So that was a process that was easy and fluid for the investor. But how much protection did it give them? Absolutely none. And the SEC's job is to protect the investor. And so that's why they like uh, registration. Now, Treasury Department, they care less about the investor, I think, and they care more about making sure people pay their taxes. And so 
you know, I think that there's significant things that are going to happen in the U.S. in the next couple of years, maybe in the next couple of months, where an electronic wallet is going to be seen as a Swiss bank account. And every single person, if you want to transact in the United States using an electronic wallet, you're going to have to whitelist it somewhere. And I think that that really is going to become the future. I think it was Barack Obama that once tweeted that as well, that, that electronic wallets were Swiss bank accounts. And it's very apt because you've got wealth in there that the government doesn't know about. It's exactly like a Swiss bank account. And the only guy that knows how to get into that wallet is you, just like a Swiss bank account. And what the government wants to do is they, they don't want you to stop trading Bitcoin. They just want to get the taxes. <laughs> and so for them, if you whitelist your wallet, every time it's, oh, there's a movement back and forth in the wallet, they will say, okay, that's a tax event. That's a tax event. That's a tax event. And they can audit it. And right now, it, you know, when you get your tax form, your 1040 right now, it says, did you have any crypto? You know, because they don't really know. You get 1099 forms or something from a crypto exchange, but they can't tell where each individual buy was and each individual sell. It's not like when you're trading it at E-Trade and they say, this is the taxes you owe for the year. You know, you can trade on a crypto exchange back and forth all day long right now. And unless you attach in an app that's going to take all your transactions and calculate the taxes for you, you're in a bit of a jam when it comes to tax season. Now you could forget it and say, you know, I'm not going to pay taxes on this stuff. It's none of their business. But I think we always know that the government always figures stuff out. So you may as well just be upfront. Now, if this does happen in the US and everyone has to whitelist their wallet, well, then they'll go offshore. That, that, that'll be your next thing. You'll say, well, then I'll trade at Binance. I'll trade offshore. Well, that's great. But let's say a problem happens and you've got to go after these companies offshore. Is the US government going to help you in the, in the US legal system? No, you're on your own. So the further you go offshore, I would argue, the more you're going to get fleeced and taken advantage of because there are no laws or protections. And that's kind of like what we're looking at today. Now, the average investor, investor here, and this is like guys that buy equities, they prefer to deal with the Morgan Stanleys, the Goldman Sachs, the Charles Schwab's, the E-Trades, companies that have been around for a long time, companies that they have to go through an AML KYC with. But going through that makes them feel safer. In fact, the more hurdles they've got to jump through, the safer they feel because they know that everyone else has had to go through these hurdles. And it's regulated. They like that. When you have no hurdles whatsoever to go trade somewhere else, I think we all know that that means you've got a lot less protection. So how do we, the question always comes, how much is too much overreach or between privacy? And how do we kind of walk that fine line? Well, it depends on your, your, your definition of overreach and privacy. I grew up in Scotland in the 70s, and I remember we'd look at pictures of Eastern Europe and think, oh my goodness, I mean, this is crazy. There's like the government reads your mail. They've got cameras everywhere. Now we live in America in 2021. There's cameras everywhere. NSA probably reads your mail. You've got much less privacy today than you did in 1970 in America, but you don't notice it because it's just... It's just happening around you, just normal. And so, you know, when you look for the least amount of friction in society, the more amount of, I guess, what you would call is chaos. This is all political here. We're getting into politics. And I'm not much of a politician. But I think that, and as you get more and more government, obviously, that means that there's more regulations and no one likes that. So there's a fine line 
this battle between the left and the right, battle between government and the, uh, the voter, that sort of gives people rights of privacy. Now, why would China be the first to do the Yuan stablecoin? Well, that's easy because there is no right to privacy. <laughs> but there, the government can see exactly what all their citizens are spending in live time. So they could track CPI, they can track your spending habits. Would you like the US government to know exactly how you're spending your money? Every single dollar? My guess is probably not. There's probably some things you'd prefer you just keep to yourself. And that's probably the, the case with most people. But in China, once the digital yuan gets in, goes into effect, they'll know everything, every single thing you're spending your money on. But that'll probably clamp down on some things. It'll be a black market barter business for if someone wants to go buy drugs or buy this or buy that, the next thing. But they won't be doing it with crypto or the digital, the digital yuan. Now, why are we having a tough time in the US having a digital dollar? Well, it's because folks probably don't want to give up on their privacy. They don't want Uncle Sam seeing what you're spending your cash on. Because when you go to the drug dealer, you don't use a credit card, you use your cash. And when you do anything that you think you don't want people to know about, you probably use cash. Because cash is untraceable once it moves from one, one to the next. Whereas the thing that people most get wrong about crypto is that once you're dealing on the blockchain, you can actually see how money is moved. You know, when folks talk about how crypto is always used for illegal events, and it's often pushed by Fox Television or someone like this, actually, it's, it's normally it's the headline for everything. Crypto used for this illegal activity. Well, the dollar's used for like 99% of all illegal activity. So crypto used is sort of like, okay, that's a nice headline. But when it is used, what you find is that we actually find out who the people were that, that used it. You know, and there's examples of chainalysis or elliptic where they've, you know, found a child pornography ring and they found it because they found all the folks that were paying with Bitcoin. They followed the Bitcoin back to the address where these guys bought the Bitcoin. And if they bought it on an exchange, they then got the person's name and address. You can't do that with cash. If you pay with cash, you've got no idea where it came from. Maybe you could do some fingerprint checks on it, but you've got no idea. But with, with cryptocurrency in present form, it can be traced back. There's a tracing mechanism. And so people always talk about how Bitcoin gives them privacy. It does give you privacy in that you've got income right now that people don't know that you have and keep it to yourself. You can spend it if you want. But when it came down to the actual, who is this person? In the end, I'd say there's maybe 10, 15% of the population that understands how to hide their crypto. And the other 85% are actually think they're hiding it, but they're not. That's just because they're uneducated on what the blockchain is. Well, no, they go buy their Bitcoin and they hold it at Coinbase. They buy their Bitcoin and they hold it on a wallet, but that wallet they've used somewhere to pay for something. And they've also put in their name and address. You know, there's like lots of different things that people always have a false sense of security. And then they have it though, but they have it on that, that private wallet. And then they pass away. And the kids are like, I thought dad was rich. It's sort of like, yeah, but we can't find a seed phrase. <laughs> That's a problem. And so because of taxes and also though because of fears over inheritance, I think that people will end up welcoming on the most part. The 85% of America will turn around and say, you know what? That's great that my wallet is registered because by registering and whitelisting my wallet, that now means it's safe. Custody would become less of an issue if everyone has a whitelisted wallet in the United States. 
Because again, if someone was to steal something from you or they were stealing from you, putting it into their whitelisted wallet and the government say, look, this is the guy that took it from you. So security of your wallet becomes much more important. It is much more important when there's no whitelisting of wallets. When wallets are whitelisted, security becomes much less of an issue. So what's your greatest fear? Losing all of your assets in a boating accident or having the government find out that you've got all your Bitcoin. <laughs> but most people in America are risk averse. I would choose, well, it's, I'd, I'd prefer the safeness of knowing that I can't lose it. But yeah, for the majority are always properly filing their taxes and doing everything right. They probably prefer not to lose it. And the majority also thinks that it's the guys with the metal hats that are the crazy ones. But I'll give you an example. About six years ago, when folks were talking about Bitcoin going to 20,000, it was the guy sitting in his basement with 300 followers saying it's going to 20,000. Everyone said, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. These guys are crazy, right? It's the tin hacker grade. Today, the folks saying that Bitcoin is going to 225,000 are the largest banks like JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, guys with millions of followers and the richest people in America. So Bitcoin's come a long way, a long way. And now the guys pointing to the sky aren't the tin hat brigade, it's the people that everyone looks up to. So I think that as Bitcoin becomes institutionalized, and it's very interesting as an asset class, because most asset classes, I think, are invented by institutions, or most products are invented by institutions and then sold off to retail at fleeced up prices. An example would be Coinbase, right? The earliest investors were private equity and VCs. The first time that retail got a chance to invest in it was when it had a hundred billion valuation at its IPO. Whereas Bitcoin in the IPO, people were getting it for a dollar, two dollars, five dollars, ten dollars, hundred dollars, three hundred dollars, and still institutions didn't hear a thousand dollars, two thousand, five thousand. Still institutions weren't caring and said this is for crazies. Then it gets to twenty thousand, thirty thousand, forty thousand, fifty thousand, sixty thousand institutions like we've got to be in this. So this is sort of like the reverse IPO. That's what Bitcoin is. And that's really what INEX was as well. We didn't raise our money initially from when we started up from the big guys. We raised it from people, individual people, 7,250 of them in 74 countries. Because our view is that it's okay for the little guy to get involved. Now, the next guy, next guy that comes along that wants to buy my company, maybe it will be an institution, but they won't be buying us at 90 cents. So we've turned the tables around. We turn the tables around to the power of the community, the power of the people, as opposed to the power of, let's say, the state. Now, we've got to follow all of the rules that the state has, and that's like threading a needle on a daily basis. But there is a way that you can trade in a regulated manner in the United States, in both digital securities and in digital assets, without falling afoul of the law. So what are the most common type of assets that people are coming to your platform to do a securities offering at this time? And what do you forecast for the next few years? I've got companies that are sports companies with millions of followers. They want to raise money from their fans. And they could go out the private equity route or VC route, or they could go public or do this or that the next thing. But you know, getting fan engagement is huge. And they've seen what we do with our fan engagement. After this podcast is over, You'll probably give me a copy of it. I'll probably send it out to our community. And you'll probably have more votes of this than you've ever had in any of your, your, your videos because I've got 8,000 people that are going to be out there talking about it in their social network. 
that's pretty powerful. That's more powerful than me having two VCs and a, and a private equity company talking about me in their social network. And so companies or people that have large social networks, they can work with that network to raise capital. I'd probably say there's a lot of popularity in that. Then I've got folks that are developing apps that also have a large user base that are excited about the app. You want to raise $20, $100 million? Do it this way because you've already got all these folks that are using your current app that might be interested in the next thing you come along with. I've got celebrities. Maybe you want to build a restaurant or finance a film, a movie. Okay, let's go to the fan base and ask them if they want to get involved. And then you give a percentage of the upside to the fan base. But I've also got traditional equity companies, companies that are already listed elsewhere, but have tremendous shorts against them on the other exchanges that say, you know what, I want to get the weight of this short off of me. And instead, I want to list an INX in a security token format, allow people to self-custody me in their MetaMask wallets. And if you take the shorts away from something, I don't have to tell you what happens to the price. So I'd say it, it's from all walks of life. And initially we did some YouTube videos saying, this is the future, this is what you could do. And it was an example, I think it was Kylie Jenner and how she could use all of her fan base to raise capital or to get the message out on something or do this or do that. And that's really what a security token is. It's about taking communities and having the communities work together towards a common goal. Now, when INEX went out there, we didn't have a community. We'd been in the quiet period for almost three years. But we went out there, we told our story. It took about a month for the, our story to get out there, doing podcasts like we're doing here. And then after a while, people got to hear us, our story, listen to us, and they liked the vision. They liked what we were saying, what we were talking about. They liked the team that we had. And I think the team's very important. You gotta have an execution team. And then from that, they decided to invest. And actually ours is the first ever US registered security that accepted Bitcoin, Ethereum, and USDC, not just dollars in the IPO. And that's pretty astounding. You know, people always say that crypto is never gonna be big in the US unless you can pay your taxes with it, where you can buy registered securities with it. And that had never been done before. So I think we're breaking a lot of barriers. We're opening a lot of doors. We're seeing a lot of interest. There's 11,000 companies on the OTC. Do you know how many of them have over a 50% short interest? A lot. The reason is because hedge funds can short them very, very easily, very, very cheaply. And I think that things will change once we uh, come to market and we start discussing some of the things we're going to be doing there. But other than that, I've got folks raising money for so many different types of projects. And in general, I think that the best projects here are ones where you expect to see very fast growth because the number of security tokens you issue are always going to remain the same. So, you know, let's say Amazon. I don't know how many shares are outstanding in Amazon today, but I'm guessing a lot more than when they initially came into the market. Because with the traditional equity, you come to market, the price goes up, you sell more equity, to raise capital, so dilute the initial holders, but you get more money. Price goes up again, dilute, price goes up, dilute, there's constant dilution. When the price comes back down, you do a share buyback, share buyback, share buyback, but you're constantly moving the number of shares. With a security token, the number of tokens is constant. So if you have a fast moving company where the revenue is just jumping, but the number of tokens is the same, then the token's gonna move up. Or if there's just inflation, and your revenues moves up just with inflation, the token's gonna to move up. So in an inflationary environment, you wanna have a fixed asset. People like Bitcoin because there's 21 million Bitcoin. 
And there's only 200 million INEX tokens. There only ever will be 200 INEX tokens, 200 million INEX tokens linked to our 40% of our profits. Now, of course, we have no profits ever. These tokens are going to be absolutely worthless. But we're in a business that if I looked at someone like Binance in the first year, they made 500 million in profits. Second year, half a billion in profits. Third year, I think it was one and a half billion. We're in a business that are in, in an industry that moves quickly, moves very, very fast and has little competition on the regulated front. So we'll go out there. We'll do the best we can for our token holders. There's no promises, you know, and they know as well as we do that we'll try as hard as we can to execute on our vision. And I think that they enjoy being along for the ride, learning about what we're doing as we're going along, much as the VC would or the private equity guy, and being part of our journey. So what are your plans on the roadmap for the next couple of years? And what are you guys looking to implement within the company? You know, the roadmap, I think, is to, well, it's to do a number of things. It's obviously cryptocurrencies. It's security tokens. At some point, it's going to be derivatives of these. But it's also offering all of these different products to retail institutions and banks. You know, banks today want to get into the space, but they're wary. They don't have the demand there for the space other than to buy the Bitcoin or to buy GBTC. Otherwise, they're not really seeing the demand. And we need to be able to show them where the demand is coming from. So we need to actually build that demand. Now, no broker dealer like Morgan Stanley is going to link into my ATS tomorrow when it's just the INX token and four or five other tokens. But as I start listing five and then six, then 10, then 50, then 100, then they're going to have to notice us. And then also, as every time I add a new security token on and I add the community that was invested in that, that security token, they become part of my community. So I start with 70 or 80,000 and I start adding 10,000, 10,000, 10,000, 10,000. Soon I've got three or four million in my community. And as my community grows and grows and grows, so can the asset size that I can help raise or introduce capital to. If you've got a billion dollar company, you want to make sure there's a lot of people that are on that exchange that can trade it. Why do people trade on NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange? Because they're linked into all these broker dealers and every broker dealer has got hundreds of thousands of people. So we need, to, we need to move up in that way. But you can do that by doing a number of things. One, creating new security tokens with new companies. Two, taking companies that are already listed on other exchanges and moving them onto our exchange. And three, listing new products like NFTs. And I think that you know we'll get there I've got great comfort and excitement in the things that I've signed, but I haven't announced. And I can't announce them here because we can only do PR because we're a public company. But, you know, I think I've built the roadmap for at least the next six months. And I think it's very exciting. I think that a lot of our job is going to be to educate the market about what security tokens can be. And it's a tongue twister. You know, you sit at the Thanksgiving team and say, hey, let me talk to you about security tokens. I said, maybe not. Right, because it's a tongue twister. So then you call it digital assets, and that's what we'll end up calling them. And then at some point, we just call them securities. But really, it's something that trades 24 hours a day, seven days a week that you can hold in your phone. And uh, maybe in the future, even stake off of them. So if you hold a certain amount of tokens, then you can get a loan, and that loan you can use to purchase this, that, the next thing. I mean, that, that's offered right now by every bank. Right? If I've got a million dollars worth of equity at Morgan Stanley, Morgan Stanley will say, Douglas, we'll give you a loan for $300,000. You can spend it on whatever you want, but if the equity collapses down, then we're liquidating your equity. Okay. So we can do that with security tokens too then, because they're also securities. 
So there's lots of different things, I think, on our roadmap that we're doing. We've also, right now, we're only available on the desktop or in a, a mobile-friendly version. Soon we'll be in an app version, and I think that's going to be exciting for folks. Right now, you, the world sees us as two separate platforms, one for cryptocurrencies, one for digital assets. At some point soon, that's going to become just the one. Soon someone with Bitcoin will be able to come in, sell the Bitcoin, get dollars, use the dollars to buy a digital asset. That's going to be pretty exciting because that'll be instantaneous and allow for that 24 hours a day, seven days a week business that we're looking for. Because right now, anything that settles in dollars is still has the issue whereby the bank has to be open for the dollars to move. And I think that once we you know sort that sort of thing out on the dollar custody, I think that that's going to be very exciting for folks. So a lot of things happening with us. It's a significant roadmap, but it's an exciting one too. Yeah, I mean, everybody's kind of been waiting for security tokens the last few years. I think it's taken a little bit longer than everybody expected, but I'm sure as soon as there's a lot more offerings that we're going to see a lot of funds created around the idea of picking up these security tokens. I can tell you why. I can tell you why no one cared about them. It's because the issues that were out there were for accredited investors and they were in assets that not everyone you know, grabs your imagination. <laughs> If I was to offer the flyers, a fan token for the flyers that had a, the fans got a piece of the revenue for the flyers. The odds are every flyers fan would say, you know what? I'll click on this QR code. I'll go in there. I'll invest. I'll buy, I'll buy $1,000 worth. I'll buy $100 worth, whatever. You'd all invest because you love the flyers. Or the Phillies, same thing. You know, you can go all these regional large teams and you can see there just on the fan base that they're rabid fans and they would do whatever they can. They buy every sweatshirt, every New Jersey, every hat. For hell yeah, they'd invest in the franchise. But the same is about companies. There's lots of companies out there that people love it. Think about Tesla. Think about Apple. I mean, it doesn't matter if your Apple phone, you know, the screen breaks every three weeks. You still love Apple and think it's the best thing in the world. It doesn't matter if your Tesla breaks down all the time. You still love it. Love the technology. And so once you have a fervent fan base, you know, you can work with them to create all sorts of different alternatives. And uh, I think that what lacked in security tokens before was one, the investor base, and INX changed that by allowing retail investors to get involved for the first time. And the other one is imagination. A security token doesn't have to be just real estate. It can be absolutely anything you can imagine, as long as it's appealing to the investor. Well, that's good. I appreciate sharing that. And let's leave off there for today. And I'm sure we might want to have you back again in a year or so to get updates and how progress is going, how many more people are doing offering, because I'm sure... Uh, you're getting a lot of inflow interest because obviously the crypto space has kind of morphed this year and everyone's there's more recognition around it in general. Look, the, I'm convinced that we're moving in the right direction. I think that everyone will know that in the next couple of months as we begin to start PRing things. And I think that people are really going to be excited about the sorts of things that are coming down the pipeline. What's the best way for them to learn more about INX or can they reach you somewhere? You know, you can go to inx.co and there there's links to our crypto trading platform, the securities trading platform. You could follow us on Telegram under INX community. Those are the two best ways. Or follow us on Twitter, INX Limited. <laughs> That's what I was wondering if you had a Twitter, right? Everyone has a Twitter. Appreciate that. Thank you for coming out today, Douglas. Thank you very much for having me. Really loved it. Cheers. The Joe Roberts Show. 